Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Volley. I'm Carolyn April, and as always, I'm looking for my good friend Seth Robinson out there. Seth? Hey. What's up? How you up? doing? I'm doing all right. I've been uh, kind of stuck in a meeting zone lately. I, I I tend to go here more often than you do, but it's like I, some of this I'm doing to myself. But I was in a workshop for some of our certification stuff and meeting with some marketing people and all kinds of things going on. See, this is the curse of the person who works in the office versus <laughs> versus me who can work remotely. But I feel your pain. Sometimes it's nice, though, to have a bunch of meetings. It's a good, uh, good distraction from hard work sometimes. But I feel you. Feel yeah. the pain. Well, some of the meetings, and I'm sure you'll you'll be involved in some of these, are actually to get ready for our upcoming event, um, our yeah. CompTIA Community and Council Forum, uh, which is a, a, a nice kind of internal-ish meeting that we do. Internal meaning it's our members. It's, it's not really open to a lot of people that might not be our members. It's not one where we're trying to sell that. It's mostly for our members to come together and talk about things. And so we're going to be meeting... March 11th through 13th in Chicago, and you'll be here. I'm already, I'm already here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I like I like this meeting a lot. It's sort of, I mean, ChannelCon is what ChannelCon is, and I like CCF for being uh, unique in that we really are focused on our members and some of the initiatives and issues that they'd like to bring to fore and how we can kind of collaborate. So it's, it's a good thing. I'm looking forward to it uh, next week. Yeah. One of the communities that we have is Advancing Women in Technology, and for the podcast today, we're actually going to do something that we've never done before. We're going to do a part one of a discussion here on Volley, and then we're actually going to do the second part of this discussion over on the the AWIT podcast. And so to join us today to have this discussion is the chair of the AWIT community, Christina Grazman. Christina, thanks for joining us. Hi, and I'm also always stuck in meetings, so I know what that's like. <laughs> you know, yeah. We love meetings in this industry, don't we? We do. Uh... I don't know when the actual, the actual work gets done after 5 o'clock. I think you're in meetings all day, and then you get work done from like 5 to 6.30. I don't know how we do it, but we do but it. There's a lot of truth to that, that's for sure. Some people are lucky to have staff to delegate the work to, but I, I'm not one of those people. I, I have the meetings <laughs> Me and I've either. got work. But... That's so, the dream. Yeah, yeah. So so thanks for joining us. Uh, the, the topic that we wanted to cover on this two-parter is diversity in the technology industry. Uh, and so on, on Volley today, we're going to talk about research that we've already talked about on Volley, but we're just going to revisit that and kind of work through the problem statement and, and what are we seeing, what do people in their company think that they're seeing. And then on your podcast, Christina, we'll talk a little bit about what some possible solutions might be. Yeah, sounds great. I wish there was one single silver bullet. I don't think there is. I think there's a lot of things. As much as things have changed, I think we've got a long way to go. And, and I think there are a number of different things that we're going to have to do and change in order to, to really close some of the gaps that we've been having. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Carolyn, this was your study, and again, we've talked about this before, but maybe you can give a quick recap of some of the the key points that we found when we did this diversity study a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This was one of our more popular studies. I think um, a lot of people are are quite interested in the topic, and when we did this um, a while back, I want to make sure it's clear that this was a, a study that went out to people who work in the IT industry, so it isn't the general 
general populace of employees, but people who work within a company um, that considers itself in the high-tech industry. And that could be anybody. It could have been the CEO. It could have been somebody who is very IT-focused, a software developer or engineer, or it could be the receptionist who works at one of the front desks at you know Microsoft or you name your, your vendor. So you wanted to get a sense of based... Largely, I think we did this study largely on the preponderance of headlines that were just out there at the time. I mean, this was a little over a year ago, but it was just one negative story after another about how the IT industry was really falling down and trying to uh, be a more diverse type of environment. And, and this was not just a singular culprit, you know, one company that was messing up. It was really something that was pretty widespread that, you know, I hate to say it, but a very white male dominated industry and not making a lot of inroads when it came to diversity across different races, diversity um, from a gender perspective, um, from an age perspective. There's all kinds of um, metrics that we can use here to measure whether the industry is being diverse or not. But I think, and I'll, I'll just toss it out there because I know we've got Christina here and Seth, you've got thoughts. But one of the most, I think, interesting findings is the, the, the perception gap. And so set of questions was asked about what people thought, the, how people thought the industry was doing from a diversity perspective, um, how their own company was doing, their own department, and drill it down a little bit. And by and large, people gave the industry and their own companies pretty high marks. This, to be perfectly honest, is totally delusional based on the statistics that are out there. So if you look at EEOC, you know, federal government statistics that break down the ecosystem and they break down, you know, by by per, by type, you know, it's it's quite obvious that everybody who said that their company or the industry is at large is doing a fantastic job with diversity, it's more wishful thinking than it is actually based in reality. So we'll just toss that one out there. And I think, I don't know, Christina, you could speak from from some of the uh, experience you've had. And I know, Seth, you and I have talked about this, but the reality does not map up with people's desires. Well, I, think, I think the reality comes in, I think companies are doing a better job of talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I think where, if I look at my own journey in this industry, which uh, spans 20 years now, um, nobody was talking about this even seven, eight years ago. So I think the conversation, the level of conversation, the amount of conversation, the, the, the chatter around this topic has really spiked in the last half a dozen years or so. And so I think that may be where some of this uh, perception is coming from. Oh, we're talking about it. I just came back from my own company's sales kickoff. And there, were, there was a diversity luncheon, there was a diversity lounge, there was a diversity session. So it's sort of like, oh, okay, we must be really doing well when it comes to diversity and inclusion because there, there is conversation, the topic is on the table. And that is a, a fantastic first chapter, I think, in, in resolving some of these challenges. So I, I, I think to me, where I see the perception changing is that people are talking about it and they're aware of it. So I get it from that perspective. I think in terms of trickling down to it actually impacting, you know, diversity in terms of balancing gender and, you know, ethnicity from an individual job role perspective or from a number of promotions or pay gap, you're right. I think we still have a very long way to go. But it, it helps that we're at least having the conversation. I'll take that over where things were when I was early in my career where 
it just it wasn't even on the table. And to me, that's that's where I'm seeing the biggest difference. No, I think you're right. I think you know, obviously, awareness is the is the first step. Uh, I think we've moved though past that to the point where talking about it is is not good enough, and it's what mm-hmm. you're going to execute on. And I think that's where we all hope to kind of come up with some prescriptives for how to do this right. Yeah, I had I had a couple thoughts, and I you know, full disclosure here, I I feel in, in a lot of these discussions like I'm representative of part of the problem here, right? I'm a white guy, uh, and I I don't know how much I always see these things, uh, and so it's it's always helpful for me to be in these discussions with other people that can explain it a lot better. And Christine, I think your explanation of the awareness and the talking about it and how much that's an improvement from before, but it still has a ways to go. I, I think that feels spot on because when I look at the data that we had and and the data saying that people feel like they're doing diversity okay, even when the numbers show that they're not, I, I can see how talking about it or having two women in a group of 10 and feeling like that's better than when we had zero women, but it's still not the five that it should be if it were going to be reflective of the population. I, I feel like those gaps are in there. And then the the other thing that I, I'd like to hear from both of you is how much of this do you think might only be like surface level where we've got two people in, two women in the room or, or two people of color or whatever it might be but we're expecting them to still behave in a in a very certain way. How, how much freedom really is there to to behave in in a way that's different than the way that has been dictated? Um, well, and and that's another yeah. part of the problem when we're talking about diversity here. And because it, it goes back to and one of the parts of the study that I did want to talk about is this idea of hiring the best person for the job. So we want to think of our industry as a meritocracy, right? We want to think of what matters is your skill set or, you know, the perspective that you bring to the table. You know, it's all about your character and how smart you are, not, not you know, what color you are. Uh, however, that goes back, well, how is the job description written to begin with, right? So hey. if you wrote the job role, to look like you, oh, I've got a four-year degree, and I've got 10 years of experience, and I, you know, I have all this, you know, industry volunteer work, and I sit on a board of directors, and blah, blah, blah. so if I write the, and if I'm, if I'm hiring my backfill, and I write the job description, well, yeah, then I'm going to get applicants or quote-unquote the best person for the job, it's going to look a heck of a lot like me. So this goes back to then, you know, even if you're bringing somebody in of a different gender or a different color, do they really have that diversity of thoughts and perspective and background, which is really the whole point of diversity to begin with? It's, it's not about, you know, having the rainbow of, of different sizes, shapes and colors for the sake of it, right? It's, a, it's having it because we know that diverse thought, diverse opinion is what makes ideas and discussion better, right? And, and you know, with every company becoming a technology company, we need to have our buyer represented in the creation process. Otherwise, we're not putting out products and service that are representative of the, the people out there making the decision to buy it or not, right? So I, I think it goes, there's this connection between making sure the job role is crafted the way that it really needs to be and that that's a lot of hard work to figure that out 
and then, you know, finding the right candidates to fill that. And then this other piece of it is having that open mindset to entertain diverse opinions and, and diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives, uh, because that's, that's really what you're aiming for, because a healthy debate is what's going to get you to that better solution. And I think the study talked about some of that. I, I love, you know, there are a lot of these stats around here about, yeah, hiring the best person for the job, but it's got to go back to, well, how is the job crafted to begin with? Yeah, it's definitely a two-pronged kind of process. I mean, what goes into recruitment and hiring is super important. And like you said, Christina, hiring managers tend to people tend to hire themselves, basically. Mm-hmm. Hire people who they relate to, who have similar backgrounds. And, and that that is a big problem um, at the outset in trying to have a more diverse workforce. And it's something that needs to be overcome. And uh, this is a big issue if you talk to HR manners, managers and anyone who's involved with that. There's also the issue of basic bias in job postings and things like that, where job descriptions are written in such a way that it dissuades a lot of people from applying, period. Like a woman might not apply for a particular job because just reading the description, it sounds, there's a, it's just loaded with all kinds of sort of masculine implications, masculine implications, and it makes it sound like it might not be a great place to work for them. And so those are some of the like practical things you can work on. But I think your bigger thing is being open to diversity of thought. So you're not just, like you said, hiring a rainbow of color in your organization, but you need to be able to have people who sit in that room be able to bring what might be an an opinion, a mindset, um, a way of thinking that is not the herd that that you're used to hearing. And and so inclusion, that when I said there's a two-pronged thing, there's the whole recruitment and hiring aspect, but then there's the inclusion piece of this that is probably least tended to within organizations. They go all about like, oh yeah, we've hired X number of African Americans, X number of women, and look at this, it looks really good on a sheet of paper. But it's what happens once those people are in your workforce and all the efforts that you make around inclusion that keep them there and also get the best work out of them so that they are bringing those new thoughts into your company. So you're benefiting from having this diversity, not just on paper as a quota, but in terms of real ideas that you can execute on. And you see the companies that, that don't do the inclusion piece right, they have a high attrition rate. People leave. People leave mm-hmm. their companies. So they may have been able to hire and gotten their numbers way up. But if you look at those companies and the tenure of those employees three months in, six months in, a year in, a lot of them leave if they're not mm-hmm. doing they're not doing the inclusion piece right. Yeah, that that goes back to the 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 awareness piece too, because I actually like the fact that again, when when this com when this topic first, you know, diversity, you know, we we talk about diversity, but the fact that we've progressed to diversity and inclusion, it speaks to that second piece, right? There's getting them in the door, but then, you know, yeah. what are we doing to create that environment that keeps people there, and and that's another. That's another part of it, too, because it's a lot of little things. So it's, yeah, having the foosball table, but it may also be having a private room where you could, you know, if you needed to pump or nurse or take a nap because you have a baby at home, right? So you need the balance of things that work for you know, what a, what a young single white man white might want to do and to take a break. And then, you know, what would younger women want or, you know, or, or moms want in the office as well. So how do you create that office environment and how do you create some of those kind of 
both kind of physical culture aspects, like I just talked about, but then what are some of those mental and emotional culture aspects that you can weave into how you do business as a company that make you feel more inclusive? And that's one of those things where that has to start at the top. So there's got to be executives that are practicing that so that the mid-level managers are practicing that so that the staff is practicing that. And, And, you know, what we're talking about here, this is hard stuff. Like, I, I wish this was really easy to solve, but I, I think we're talking about a lot of higher level kind of thought processes where, you know, on the one hand, we all love all of this stuff. On the other hand, I have a monthly quota that I have to hit, or we have got a stock price that we have to hit. And so, you know, when we get to the bottom line, it's sort of like, what do I have to do to get to the bottom line? And so our company is going back to those old habits that got them to the bottom line in the short term at the potential sacrifice of longer term growth and success. So, you know, the, the, no easy answers, but I, I do think there are small things that we can do at an executive level and at an individual, you know, worker level to, to try to address some of these topics. You raised something. I'm sorry to jump in, Seth, and I'll let you speak, obviously, after that. We're, we're <laughs> shutting out the white guy in the room. <laughs> But I just wanted to say that you make a good point about having to make your numbers and you've got quotas and all this and, the, and you can fall back on the habits that you're used to to get you there. And so all of this sort of highfalutin stuff about we're going to be diverse and everything kind of gets set off to the side. But one of the re- one of the really good positive messages to take to your company, and we found this in the study and all the research that I've done outside of the study, is don't frame diversity as a numbers game, but frame it as um, it's going to spur innovation within your company and it is a business benefit. And if you frame it as a business benefit, this could help us increase revenue. This could help us cut costs. This could help us get into new markets. This could help us create a new product. When framed like that, and this is accurate, having a more diverse workforce has found time and again to be able to pull all of those levers, push all of those levers in a positive direction for the business. That's a much more compelling argument than simply saying we need to have X percentage of Asian Americans Mm -hmm. being in our company. Yep, that's a good point. And I was just going to point out that, you know, when we're describing the problem here, one really black and white part of the problem that lands kind of in the inclusion once you've got them in the door, making them feel welcome and respected is the pay. Uh, And we looked a little bit at pay gap in our study, not as extensively as some other studies, but I think it would be worth kind of addressing the reality of the pay gap, because I think all of us have looked at studies before, whether it's on pay gap or or anything, and you can kind of look at the methodology of that study and say, well, maybe they didn't, you know, consider that. And so when, when studies get done on pay gap that maybe don't consider every angle, I think it's too easy for people to pick apart and say, well, maybe there's not a pay gap. But I think there are plenty of studies uh, and some of our research and anecdotal evidence and everything that show that there is a pay gap. Uh, And again, it's it's part of kind of the the metrics that you were talking about, Christina, that gets set up and how are those set? uh, And then it's just, you know, kind of black and white. What are we paying people that are doing the same work? Yeah, that's it's a big problem. There's so many reasons, I think, why the pay gap exists, right? It's everything from, and oh my, I've seen this when I, I, I go back and I, I speak at my alma mater occasionally and I speak to the college students there. And I also am involved in a mentoring program. So every semester I, I have usually a junior who's, who's I'm, I'm mentoring for the semester. 
And um, and so I went to a woman's college. So inevitably, I'm talking to young women or I'm, I'm mentoring young women. And time and time again, they're asking me questions about, you know, work-life balance and with, ki- you know, how do I work with kids? And how? And I'm like, are you pregnant? Like, are you about to have a baby? Are you getting married? Like, no, no, no. And I'm like, don't even think about that right now. Like, so I, I feel like I see young women before they even get into the workforce are, are pumping the brakes on their career because they're worried they're not going to be able to make it work 10, 15 years down the road. You know, women don't start off on that same growth trajectory. Like they're, they're limiting themselves from the beginning. And then, God forbid, they do take time off. And I, I, hired, I helped hire a young woman that's going back a few years ago. She got laid off. Her, her job got, uh, her company got acquired and she got laid off in the acquisition. And she had a, a one-year-old at the time, decided to stay home for a while. And then when she came back into the workforce, she had to take a pretty big pay cut and, and come back in a job that was not what she left at. Now, she has since leapt frog, you know, up and is now beyond. But I keep thinking, boy, had she not taken that break, would she be even further than she is today, right? So I think that's another thing, too, where, you know, women get, you know, there's this, this negative cachet associated with taking time off. And so when you come back, think about that gap in her pay and her increase her pay increases that she would have gotten because she had to take that step back. And I think, too, the, the, other, the other challenge that we still have is that we as, as women are not seen the same way when it comes time for promotions. We are judged more by what we've done versus more by our potential for what we could do. And there's less of a tolerance to have women kind of grow into that role where a young man who's got a lot of promise and, and, you know, he reminds me of me when I was that age and you kind of put them in, oh, he's got so much potential. And then he gets put in that higher level with the higher level pay. And then, you know, that just goes from there. So, you know, we definitely have some challenges. Again, I think that they're mindset, cultural challenges that, that we have to get over and, and, and not have and companies need to say, okay, in order to get a promotion, here is the documented process. Like it, it can't be a, a gut feel around who gets promoted or who doesn't. It's got to be a documented process that, that anybody can hit those rungs, not somebody who happens to have a really good sponsor, right, you know, in, in their organization. So I, th- I think we have to start addressing more of, more of those things um, as well. So we, there's a lot of, of companies culture and sort of unwritten processes that I think are contributing to this, particularly when it comes around, uh, I think, promotions. I don't, and one last thing I'll say on this, I don't think anybody goes into it intending to pay one group less than another group. I, I don't think that's, I don't think there's some like devious plot around that. I think it, it ends up becoming a reality again, because I think, you know, you've got, you know, women not not going for it kind of maybe early in their career, not going for the promotion because maybe they don't think they're 100% qualified and, and willing to take the risk. You know, they maybe they're taking time off or they're or they're maybe they're still working, but they put the brakes on their career because they have young children that they're trying to care for. And then it, it all kind of adds up. And so by the time you hit your your mid 30s to your mid 40s, where you should be in those prime earning years, you're behind because of some steps you took along the way. And then on the other side, from a higher level hiring manager executive, they're looking at different people differently in terms of their, well, he's 
he is management material, right? Or he's executive level material. I think there's there's some culture things that we have to address as well. So just a, a lot of little things that, that I think if we all got better at, I think we'd start to see some closings of those gaps. But I guess that's part of the challenge is who owns that, who's going to lead that, and you know how are we really going to go about addressing it? Yeah, Christina, I'll just say it is a very complicated issue. Um, and, you know, in our data from the study that we did, the number one reason that women would leave a job is pay inequity. And that sounds very, okay, that's very black and white. But the reality is there are very, and I think you, you, you said this, there are very few examples of it just being blatant pay inequity based on gender. We're going to pay that woman less than that man, period, because they're doing the same work, but we just pay men more. It, I mean, it's just not that simplistic. And, and, and it's, it's a lot more complicated. And I do think the important, the only way to really to make sure that we try to eliminate some of these issues is to have this be a top-down thing. And we found that in the study too. So organizations to solve all of these highly sophisticated and complicated types of, of issues, pay inequity being one of them, um, need to have it all championed from the CEO or president or whoever of the organization on down. Because what we found is if this is just percolating from the bottom up, it tends never to be codified into some official process that actually works and people get behind. So I think one of the important things to, to take away here as we, as we have this discussion is it, it's got to be something that comes from the, the powers that be at the top of the organization. So interesting saying the last two companies that I have joined, and this is a brand new thing for me. I had never experienced, experienced this before. Neither wanted to know my salary history, which was never the case before. I mean, I, uh, prior years, it was always like, well, what's your salary history? And your, your opening bid, if you will, from a compensation standpoint was largely based on what you were getting paid at your prior employer. My current employer and the employer that I worked for uh, prior to this one flat out made it very clear to me, do not tell me. I, don't, I can't know. Like, I, I don't want to know. And I think it's because, again, both companies have policies in place to address these wage gap issues. And uh, both of them were, you know, made it quite clear to me that the job offer was going to be based on what the role was expected to produce, not based on my, my salary history or really what I could negotiate. There really wasn't a whole lot of negotiating room either which I think is another thing that we didn't really talk about is, is a lot of women tend not to really negotiate compensation. They, they take what's offered to them, whereas, you know, historically men will negotiate much bigger packages. And I think it's interesting, both, tech, both of these companies, large technology companies, took kind of both of those things off the table. I don't want to know your salary history. And there was very minimal negotiation room. And I think I, I was actually really encouraged by that. I liked that a lot because, again, it goes back to – that ideal utopia of a meritocracy. You know, I'm being offered a job based on I'm qualified for the job, and this is, you know, pay is commensurate with what the job's expected to do. It's not based on what I can negotiate or what I happen to make before. So I was actually encouraged to see that. All right. Well, Christina, like you've said a few times now, uh, this is not a simple problem. It's uh, there's it's got a lot of complexity to it and uh, it goes pretty deep at a lot of places. We've talked a lot about what that problem is, um, but now to talk about some of the things that can be done about it and some of the things that the community has been talking about doing about this problem, I think we'll end the conversation here and uh, we'll head over and anyone that wants to check out part two 
should check out the Women in Tech podcast. So thanks again, Christina, for joining us. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Christina.